Amen. Well, please turn your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and find chapter 1 and the first four verses where we'll focus our attention this morning on the middle of this section. As we open our Bibles back up to Hebrews chapter 1, what will we see? Well, you shouldn't have to think too hard on what we will see. You will see all about Jesus. Normally, any passage that you open in the book of Hebrews is going to tell you about who Christ is, but who exactly is this Jesus? A very appropriate question for this time in our culture's calendar. It's a season where our culture is dominated by a baby Jesus born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes of mystery. But who exactly is Jesus? Hebrews would tell us he's the prophet through whom God has finally spoken. He's the priest who's accomplished the perfect work of the final cleansing for his people. And he's the king who sits enthroned at the chief place of honor next to Yahweh. Who is Jesus? He's the son. He is God. And the point of this opening section is simply to prove that Jesus is who the preacher claims that he is. If Jesus is the final word, then he has to be someone quite special because of what this final word is supposed to be accomplishing. Jesus is referred to as the son, the final word. But what is a son? Well, if you have one, or you know a father and a son, or you are one of those, you know the connections that are made between father and son, the similarities that are unavoidable, the characteristics that are passed down from father to son, sometimes the phraseology, maybe those things that the son says, I'm never going to say, and then someday they say it. They just can't help themselves. That's the connection between the father and the son. Jesus is the son. This is a precious gift that God has given us to understand Christ and himself by showing us this relationship between God and Jesus as father and son. But don't confuse Jesus's sonship, as many people do, with some sort of a demotion. There is no demotion in calling Jesus the son. We're told over and over and over in the book of Hebrews how wonderful Christ is, how final Christ is, how supreme Christ is. The argument of Hebrews takes great pains to show that this Son of God is not only the final revelation of God, but is seated at the right hand of God, superior to all others in every fashion. He's superior. In the context, he's superior to the angels. But in chapter 3, we'll get to see Jesus is superior to Moses, the greatest prophet Israel had. He's superior in chapter 4 to Joshua, the conqueror for Israel. He's superior to Aaron, the high priest of Israel, in chapter 5. This climactic, final, and ultimate son is the crowning revelation and the final revelation, supreme revelation of God, his only son. These final words were spoken to us, not only in Scripture, not only in the book that we have, but also in Jesus' saving actions, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation, which are all in view here in these first four verses. This is how God has finally spoken to us. It's by his Son. Well, who's the Son? In these verses, he's described by his character. He's described by his occupation. He's described by his function. He's described uh, in his roles of revelation, creation, reconciliation, and redemption. 
All of it hinges or pivots on a single phrase. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. So God's medium for the final revelation is not merely uh, the ideal son, but the genuine and real son. Jesus is not a picture of God. Jesus is God. Have you ever read a biography that kind of drug on? I've read a few that I had to read for classes along the way. It's like, okay, I get it. Did a thing. It was hard. Keep going. This author is not that author. This author is like a, a pro boxer with a speed bag. Like he is coming after it. He's just peppering us with all the beautiful realities of who Christ is. There's rhythm, there's cadence, there's skill, there's perfection, and there's speed. You are learning, not in totality, but you're learning in summary the outline of Christ's amazing biography. And as we get to these first four verses, as we start to work our way through, it's as if we held up this prism of Christ and we shined our light of investigation through it and out of it came seven beams of brilliant color that all describe the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of who Christ is. And they all seek to prove one central theme. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is God. Those are saying the same thing. Jesus cannot be the Son of God without being God. Jesus cannot be God without being the Son. So who is this Son? This is the final word of God. And the preacher answers the question, who is the Son, by giving us seven marks that prove Jesus is the Son, God's final revelation. So please stand with me. We'll read Hebrews chapter 1, the first four verses this opening sentence of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning in hopes to understand this final revelation that you've given us, your son. We have precious truth here, weighty truth, beautiful truth truth, truth that goes beyond our, our ability. And so we ask for your spirit to help us to make these words understandable to our souls that we might really by faith believe. And that because of our faith, the grace you've shown us, the love that we see demonstrated that we would live for your glory, that we would recognize here all that we need is found in the sun because the sun brings us to you. The Son shows us you. We can come to you through the Son. So help us, Father, to worship our Savior this morning, our truly human Savior and our truly divine Savior. Give us grace to understand these things we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I think you can be seated. Again, notice... This clause, this clause in the middle of verse two, it's highlighted in red there. He has spoken to us by his son. This is the 
grammatically dominant phrase that the rest of verses 2 to 4 are going to seek to modify and explain. This phrase in the middle of verse 2, he has spoken to us by his son. There's seven phrases that follow after that that all seek to define who this son is. This makes a touch less sense in English because it's multiple sentences, but this is one big, fat, hairy Greek sentence, all robust and complex. And so catch the precision of construction for a moment as we look at this. These seven clauses from verse 2b to 4, they all have one defining element of who the Son is. There's an attribute or a characteristic that we'll look at this week and next week that show us the quality of who Jesus is that demands that he is, in fact, the Son of God. He is who he says he is. We're not going to look at it today, but when you get to uh, verses 5 to 13, you're going to, if you look in your Bible, you'll see there's probably something going on there with the formatting. There's probably quotations or there's italics or it's indented or something in verses 5 to 13. Why is that? Because those are all quoting Old Testament passages. And what you'll see is if you look at these seven characteristics, these seven phrases that define who the Son is, you're going to see the preacher give you seven Old Testament passages that all back up these characteristics that he's showing us. Remember, this author, this preacher, uses 20% of his text space to quote the Old Testament. So he's, he's helping us see the value and the beauty and the wonder of what the prophetic word about Christ is as he shows it to us in real time here in his sermon to understand exactly that Jesus is not just uh, who we make him. He is who God has said he is from the beginning. So those seven Old Testament quotations, they're all going to correspond to these seven marks of the divinity of the Son. Jesus as the Son is the fruit of God's prophetic fulfillment in the life and ministry and the being of the person that we call Jesus. So if you get through Hebrews chapter 1 and you don't see the glory and the necessity of Christ as the Son and you think, well, maybe he could just have been a really good guy or he was a great teacher, then I should be fired or you should pick a different church because this is showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's divine. There's no other way around it. Jesus is the Son. The Son is God. Jesus is God. Simple, true, logical. This is what we're told in the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the Son. The Son is God. Jesus is God. So we'll begin this week and finish next week considering these seven marks that prove Jesus is the Son, God's final revelation. Notice the first mark, the phrase that modifies, the first phrase that modifies the Son is that he's the one whom God appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is the divine heir of all things things and error. We must understand Christ as heir is important for many reasons, but partly because this is the beginning and the end of this understanding of who the Son is. Look there at the seventh mark in verse 4, and you'll see it's, in talking, it's talking about his inheritance. Heirs inherit. Christ inherits the superior name. Only an heir inherits the most precious Thing a family had, and that was the superior name. So here is Jesus, the son, the heir, the one who inherits the most superior thing. And in Greek and Jewish culture, the law presupposed that the firstborn or the oldest son received the inheritance. Why? Well, obviously, the oldest son is the most beloved of the father. No, that's, that's not it. Uh, is it because he was a productive member of the family? 
That's, that's not it. Why did the oldest son receive the inheritance? Just because that's how it was. That was what was understood. He was the oldest son, so he received the inheritance. He didn't have to merit it. He didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to do something special to receive it. That's the argument that we see here. Jesus is the heir. Why? Because he's the son. But the preacher goes way beyond familial merit. He says God appointed Christ heir, the one who will inherit all things, just to make sure there's no confusion. This is a verse where people go, this is a theological term, they go interpretationally bonkers. They seriously do. It's all kinds of messy when you're trying to figure out what's going on here with Jesus being appointed as the son. But what is the author trying to communicate? What is the preacher trying to say when he uses this illustration? He's telling us that Jesus is the son. So keep that in mind. Don't lose sight of the forest as you inspect the leaves. But what is it to be a son? We can kind of compare our sonship to Jesus's sonship, sonship that we're familiar with. It's a reasonable comparison, but to say my sonship is the same as Jesus's sonship is silly. I am not eternal. Jesus is. My dad sold his cattle. Jesus, his dad owns all the cattle. There's just no exact synonymous comparison. It doesn't take long to see the differences between our sonship and Jesus's divine sonship. But the truth remains that Jesus is the heir of all things. And the emphasis is put on the reality that Jesus is the son. So therefore he's the heir. God appointed him son. Why? Or appointed him heir. Why? Because he is the son. In a few verses, the preacher is going to quote from Psalm chapter two, where this idea comes from. And we'll look more at them at Psalm 2 then. But Psalm 2 points to, the, to this beautiful and lofty and amazing future that this anointed one that we look at in the Old Testament, this anointed one is going to have. The Messiah who will come, who will be the eternal ruler, who will be the perfect ruler, the inheritor of all the nations is all looking forward in Psalm 2. The Jews, they didn't understand how this could be possible of one man, the one that could inherit all things, the one that could be the ruler of all things, the one that could be the leader and the Messiah of all things. They didn't, they didn't see how these would go together, how the roles of sacrifice and ruler would come together, how the suffering servant that we find woven through Isaiah and his prophecy could also be the, the Messiah or the anointed or the ruler of all things. But in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, we see the future ruler is the son. In Psalm 2, we see the future son is the one whom we take refuge in. How do you take refuge in the son if he's the ruler? How do you go to him if he's the ruler, if he's exalted and high and lifted up? Well, somehow he must have been also humble in his humiliation, which we celebrate in his incarnation we call Christmas. So we see the future, the son is the one whom we should fear because of who he is and his wrath. All that's bound up in Psalm chapter 2. But in Hebrews chapter 1, we see the son who inherits the son who was the final revelation is the one who inherits. So this is saying this is, this, this is who Jesus the son is. And when did that happen? Well, that's where people get crazy. God appointed him. When? Well, he designated him. He said, this is the one. When did all that happen? At the culmination of redemptive history. Meaning what? Meaning the incarnation, the cross, the buried Messiah, the risen Savior, the empty tomb, the occupied throne at God's right hand after the ascension, all these things, this is when this happened. 
And all of these things can only happen and all of, all, they can only be put together in one person. And that one person could be only who? The son. Jesus is the only one who can fit these descriptions. Jesus is the only one who can possibly be all these things. That one is the son. He was promised in eternity past. It was achieved during his passion. It was inaugurated as ascension and the culmination is coming, the inheritance when all things are going to be given to him. God is the ultimate father and as such is able to give what he pleases to whom he pleases and his pleasure is to appoint his son as the heir. The heir to all things, to everything. You may be thinking, well, what are all things? Well, this is the broadest language the preacher could employ. All of everything, everywhere, at all time is the sons. But here's why it's so important, because everything in the universe has its purpose and destiny to be given over to the son. Do you think God is going to give his son a mediocre inheritance? No. We see in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. And this is not just the, that Jesus is some sort of a silver spoon heir. Jesus has worked and directed and is orchestrating and bringing about all things to be perfect for himself, for his inheritance in eternity. The idea of being appointed heir builds into our everyday a useful eschatology that reminds us the perfect future is awaiting, the inheritance of the perfect son. If Jesus is going to inherit what is perfect and Jesus is in control, then why do we do things like worry? Because we know what Jesus is doing is the best for himself. He's going to have the perfect inheritance. The father is orchestrating. Jesus is perfecting. We don't have to Worry. God appointed Christ as heir over everything, all things. Again, this allusion likely to Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father is saying to this uh, Davidic king who would rule on the throne of David, who might that be? Jesus. Remember blind Bartimaeus, Mark chapter 10, a blind man could see what? When he couldn't get to Jesus, he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Mark chapter 10, verse 47. A blind man saw that Jesus was the son of David. He knew that all things were coming to this one they called Christ. They called Jesus the one who'd save his people from his sin. The one they called Emmanuel, God with us. He can't just be a man. He has to be God. He's not just a son. He's the son. He's the heir. He's the inheritor. He's the supreme son. And yet people didn't really understand this in Jesus' life and they were tempted to forget this after his death when he was gone ruling in heaven. What's the preacher's point here? Well, the point is only royalty could be promised all things. All things. As a father, you can only promise what you own. I have right now three sons. I had to think about it for a second. Three sons. They're not going to get a lot. But if I were to promise some of your things to them, you probably wouldn't appreciate that. You can only promise to your heirs what is yours. So God the Father says all things are my sons. Why would he give all things to someone who wasn't his son? How could his son not be God? 
You see what the preacher's doing? He's trying to make sure that you understand that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the son of God. They are the same person. They are, in fact, who? God. Jesus is human. Jesus is divine. The preacher's reminding these believers why this is so important. Because where were they at in life? They were struggling. They were worried about today. They were terrified of tomorrow. They were wondering what's coming. They needed reminded that Jesus was not just a good guy. Jesus was the God-man. Jesus was worth everything. And God the Father looked at the Son like that, so we should look at the Son like that. He's not just a good man who was a great teacher but killed a few decades prior. He was, in fact, the Savior the one whom the Father appointed, the heir of all things, the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David, the one promised to Abraham and the one seen here as the Savior, the Son, Jesus Christ. The nations are his, the earth is his, the heavens are his. Why? Because he is the Son who will inherit all things. And the second mark that proves that Jesus is the Son, God's final revelation, is that Jesus is the creator. Look at the next phrase. The appointed heir of all things, through whom also... He, being the Father, created the world. So through whom the Father created the world, who is whom? Jesus. Jesus is the one who created all things. The agent of creation, God says, is the Son. We know creation was a Trinitarian event. God the Father spoke creation into being. The Spirit hovered over the earth, Genesis 1-2. The Son, we see here, created. And this is the, the prefigure of what's coming in chapter 1, verses uh, 10 and 11 or 10 to 12, actually. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. That's a quote of Psalm 102, verse 25 to 27. But that shouldn't be a surprise to learn that Jesus was the creator. You've heard that before, like Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created. Who's it talking about? Jesus. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is creator. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. For there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Or first, or chapter excuse me, or John chapter one, verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is the creator. But in Hebrews chapter one, verse two, what precisely did Christ create? We translate it as the world, which is very appropriate, but don't think third rock from the sun. This is not talking about the planet. This is talking about everything that has ever been at any time and anywhere. The Greek word here is aeons, which can be a designation of all the time and the ages. Sometimes you say it, eons, but it can also be expansive. It means all the things at all the times. Time and space, anything that fits in time and space was created by Christ. What falls out of that? If it is, Christ created it. What's the point? Jesus created everything. Nothing exists that was not created by Christ. And why do we need to know that? Why do we need to know that the Son, the final revelation of God, is also the Creator? Because the Creator is and always must be only God. You cannot be both Creator, or you cannot be Creator but not God. 
Creation is fundamental to God. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5, Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Isaiah describes God creating the world like God staking out a tent, like he went camping. And he just threw out the tent and stuck down this corner and stuck down this corner with a tent peg and stretched it out. Now, I know putting a tent up for some of you is fascinatingly complicated, but for God, it was easy. And he just created a world like that. It's like he made concrete in a bucket. He just poured in some cement, some water and some rocks, stirred it up a little bit. Here you got, boom, here's earth. This is what God did. Not a man. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. Fast forward, Revelation chapter four, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You get the point? God created. Therefore, God makes the rules and God gets the glory. Why does the world have such a problem with God being the creator? Because when God's the creator, God makes the rules, God determines what's right and wrong, and you have to submit to it. But if all we have to do is say, well, God didn't create, then you can do whatever you want. Sound familiar? But God's the creator. If the son is the creator, then the son is God. Because only God can create. And what do we see about the son? He's the creator. What should, uh, what should the son being creator cause in us uh, but fear and reverence to him? How can we consider and how can we imagine that the son of God created all things in every time and every age and think, hmm, Jesus is my homeboy. The son of God who was in his incarnation, hungry, sleepy, teary, weary, angry, even dead, is the same Son of God who created the world and is the same Son of God who is the final revelation of God who has been given to who? To us. Why? So that we can understand who God is, we can see who we are, and we can recognize how God has offered to bring us back to himself. And how did he do that? Well, he did that through his Son. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Only this son could do these things. That son who is in every way all entirely glorious is the son who saved us by his sinless life and his atoning death. It's the greatest gift God could offer to a world undeserving as us. Jesus, the heir, the son, the creator died for us. Amazing. The third mark that proves Jesus is the Son is God's final revelation that Jesus is in his person divine. So a mere human cannot be the Son of God in the way that Jesus is the Son of God. So having explained what the Father has done for the Son or called the Son or orchestrated in the Son, the author now turns to describing the Son. He's exalted, not only by virtue of, of what the Father does for him and through him, but by virtue of who he is. He's the effulgence of God's glory and the imprint of his nature. Consider in the beginning of verse 3, the person of the Son. How do we identify Jesus? 
There's two phrases here in verse 3 that both uh, are, are they're connected by an and. They're synonymous clauses. They're, they, they're saying the same thing, just in a slightly different way. They're, they're really a repetition of this one emphasis. And what's the emphasis? That the Son is God. That's the point that the preacher is making. Verse 3 begins, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So these two corresponding phrases, they're teaching about the being of Jesus or the ontology of Jesus. What is the nature of Jesus? We know he's the final revelation. We know he's the heir. We know he's the creator. And just in case you're not picking up what the preacher's putting down, he's telling you that he's God. You cannot miss that he's God. He's not God-like. He's God. He's not God-ish. He's God. He's not like the dollar store version of God. He is genuine, real divinity. He is God. And the preachers communicating this with these phrases that are, that are winsomely and powerfully put together and connected to help us understand the beauty and the wonder and the uh, fascinatingness of the divinity of Christ. First, we see he's the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is, or this is his being, the state of being. He is, it's his personhood, it's who he is. He is God. Notice how it's explained. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance. It's the the outshining of what is within. It can't shine out if it's not within. That's what makes, that's what it means to to radiate, to outshine, to shine out something from within. When I was in college, I worked at a welding shop. And uh, since I didn't have any warrants for my arrest and I had a valid driver's license, I got to do all the uh, out-of-shop calls. It wasn't because I was a good welder or anything. Just the only one that could drive the company truck, you know, and go to the restaurant, fix stainless steel hoods, or go to a hotel and fix the metal door jams. My favorite job was when the Pittsburgh Public Library had a radiator leak. So they were, it's a hundred-year-old building, over a hundred years old, and they had these radiators, you know, the old cracking, crackling, popping ones that make all the noise and such, and and uh, over the Christmas break, it had, it had a crack. And it got the whole library, like 100% humidity. All the librarians, you know, they're normally happy people. <laughs> but uh, no offense. But these libraries, man, they were upset. At the, and they put on the, the uh, JB Weld and couldn't fix it. So they finally called and they get there, you know, it's cold. They shut it all down. And so I'm trying to fix this because they'd remodeled at some point. You couldn't take the radiator out. You had to do it right there. So I'm brazing this stainless steel or this uh, cast iron after you get it cleaned up and finally get it done. And then you crank up the boiler. Then you hear all the noises. And, you know, it sounds like something's alive inside these boilers. But, you know, all the steam's coming through and it's starting to get heat. And what do you feel? Oh, man, there is nothing like radiator heat. It's it's a pain in the neck to get going sometimes, but it's amazing. Forced air, whatever. But radiator heat, that's, that's where it's at. The old timers had it figured out. But it was a beautiful thing. And I stood there, felt good, felt the warmth, watched for leaks, no leaks, radiating heat. You've stood in front of a radiator. You know what it's like. Do you see it? Not really. Do you feel it? Yeah. Do you know it's there? Do you know why it's there? Because there's hot air moving through it. What happens if the boiler breaks? The radiator is not warm because there's no heat in it. There's got to be something in it to radiate out of it. Why does Jesus radiate the glory of God? Because he has the glory of God within him. Why? Because he is who? God. You don't have to be 
told that he is God, when you see him radiate the glory of God, it radiates out. What is inside comes to the outside, which is why this is a perfect illustration. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Jesus is God and is the glory of God and the glory of God radiates out of him. If Jesus wasn't God, would he radiate the glory of God? No. But Jesus is God and the glory of God radiates out of him. He's the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance. Preacher had to get out of the thesaurus for this word. It's the only time we find it in the whole New Testament. It's the only place we find this word. It's quite rare in all of antiquity too, but it was described or was used to describe the pre-dawn light coming over the horizon. You knew the sun was there. How did you know it was there? Because the light was radiating over the horizon. That's the picture that we get. Through the sun, God, who lives in unapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6.16, is revealed and comes, becomes tangible. John chapter 1, verse 14, is kind of a sister truth to this, Hebrews 1.3 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus isn't a form of God's glory or a product of God's glory or a result of some work of God. Jesus is what? God. The purpose of the metaphor is to develop the idea that God has spoken in a superior way in his Son, compared to his revelation through the prophets in verse 1, or even the angels in verse 4. What's more superior than the original? Nothing. That's why Jesus is the Son. The second phrase is really just the, the first phrase in new wrapping. Imprint. This idea, the exact imprint of his nature. Notice they're connected by and, saying these two things are the same thing here. So there's first, Jesus radiates the glory of God. And second, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Imprint is another word that the uh, preacher had to use this thesaurus for. It's the only time we find it in the New Testament. But you'll recognize it. It's character. Character. It's what it means. You're familiar with that idea. It's also used to describe a stamp or the image on a coin. So in a figurative sense, uh, it's used for the characteristic traits of an individual or a group of people or even to describe a culture. And this imprint, this stamp, is the means by which God's nature is made known. And it's, the imprint is not a stamp, it's a person, and it's the Son. The imprint of God's nature is Jesus, because Jesus is no different than God, because Jesus is what? God. Just as an imprint duplicates the, the appearance of the original, Jesus duplicates God because Jesus is identical to God. And this equality is not limited to some sort of visual appearance. Uh, it's the obvious reality because the preacher says it's his nature. It's his being. The composition of his being, the truth of his personhood is divine. Jesus is God's imprint, not only with respect to form, but also with respect to his being. Again, it's the being of Christ is divine. And what the preacher is trying to illustrate is the equality between God and his own son, whom he has spoken to us by. Imagine God's pretty difficult to illustrate. We think we can kind of, you know, take a shot at it, but you'll fail. You just will. So, well, the Psalm's full of illustrations of God. Yep, they're all insufficient. So, well, so the psalmist says that God's like a rock. Yeah, except for God's everywhere. So God's as strong as the waves, yeah, except for there's breakers. Well, God's like the sun, except for there's night. 
There's always reasons we look and think God's like the vastness of the sky. Okay, but the sky is not eternal. Psalms are full of analogies and metaphors and descriptions of God, but they all fall short. Unless you use Jesus to illustrate God, you will always find yourself using an insufficient illustration. That's the brilliance of God's revelation of himself to us through his son. There's no loss in this audio file. There's no buffering to this download. There's everything that Jesus is, is exactly who God is. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. This may sound like Colossians 1.15 to you. He's the image of the invisible God. Paul told the Philippians that Jesus was in the form of God. All these descriptions are trying to illustrate one thing. Jesus is God. His glory and his divine nature attest that he is God. What's the preacher getting at? Well, uh, Jesus is God or your version of Jesus is fake. And if you're serving a, a fake Jesus, you have lots of problems that go beyond your theology. Imagine these people who were getting this sermon read to them. They were thinking of the struggles and trials of today and looking forward to the difficulties of the future. Were they serving the real Christ? Were they saved by the real Christ? If Jesus was fake, why suffer? Just run. If Jesus was fake, why would you put yourself in this position? Just go right back to Judaism. If Jesus was fake, why not worship Caesar? But Jesus is God. If you want to know God, you must know the true son. It's not okay to have a Jesus that you like. You have to have the right and true Jesus. And this is the true Jesus. Until you have the true Jesus, you don't have Jesus. Until you have Jesus, you can't have the Father. That's what Jesus said in the upper room in John chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is who God is. Who? Jesus. Jesus is the superior, perfect, final revelation of God because he is the Son of God. You can't know Jesus if Jesus is not the God-man, truly God. You can't know Jesus if Jesus is not human, truly human. That is who the Son of God is, the final revelation of God. Several years ago, when I lived in town on Lenox Avenue, I was laying under my Jeep trying to get my Torque Flight 727 transmission to not shift like a grain truck. And as I laid there, I saw these two pairs of dress shoes show up. Two pairs of slacks. On top of that was two white shirts with short sleeves and two black ties. I'm like, oh man, Amy's got the kids. I'm working on my Jeep. Oh man. What's up, guys? Is Jesus God? That was my question. Because I had stuff to do and just wanted to see what they'd say. And through their milieu of confusion and a bunch of pseudo-theological camouflage, they finally said, not in the way that you understand. So we went to where? Here. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Why? Because this passage teaches unequivocally that the Son is God. Their rebuttal was simple. Well, why doesn't it say the Son is God? In a moment of... Haste, I just asked them another question. When you've been married to the woman of your dreams, do you describe her as the one you share a tax break with? Or is she the one who completes your soul? When you have children, do you describe them as a product of your biology or the apple of your eye? When you have a friend, do you describe them as one you spend more time than with the, than other people? Or do you describe them as the one who, like J.C. Ryle says, halves your sorrows and doubles your joy? 
Don't miss what the preacher's saying. Jesus is God, but he says it in a way that's as beautiful as the truth he's describing. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If you don't think that Jesus is God, you don't know God, nor do you know Jesus, because Jesus has to be and is God. The fourth mark that we see in verse three that again proves Jesus is the son of God is the power, specifically the power that he displays in his role of upholding the universe. Look there, middle of verse three. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is our final consideration for today as we examine the evidence before us that Jesus is God. Again, this is not new information to the New Testament. Colossians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 17 seems like it's almost reworded, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This verse teaches clearly that Jesus not only looks like God, or appears like God, or acts like God, but he does the work of God. Why would he do the work of God? Because he's God. What does the Son do? He upholds the universe. Years ago, I was on LinkedIn. I can't find my password, but I remember my LinkedIn days. They were a long time ago. And I remember I had friends that were on LinkedIn. And you read their like, job description. You're like, wow, that's impressive. But then you know what they do. It's like, dude, you're an intern. You're not running the company. How do you, this is not match. What you do does not, what is Jesus' LinkedIn job description? I uphold the universe by the word of my power. That's impressive. What does it mean to uphold the universe? It's the activity of Jesus the Son to ensure the world has what it needs, when it needs, to accomplish the purposes he says it needs. This, is, uh, this upholding, it's not a thing that was established long ago, kind of set in motion and he walked away from. And this verb is translated upholding. It's a present reality, a sustaining ability. It just means to carry. You've heard he's got the whole world in his hands. This, this is it. This is true. He's holding everything. But beyond upholding, there's a sense of direction implied. There's a purpose given to it. There's a sense of where Jesus is upholding it for something. What is the for something? It's for himself. Because he's the heir, verse 2, of all things. He's sustaining creation in accordance with his own eternal purposes. Nothing is left to chance. Maybe you've heard that the earth spins on an axis or you've seen the weatherman talk about high pressure systems, low pressure systems and what they don't know, but we still pay him to tell us. And all these things happen and we say they follow the laws of nature. That's junk. They follow what Jesus says. The laws of nature are simply how Jesus upholds the world. There's only one word of the sun's power. There are no other forces that are in direct control of anything. Again, this is Christ's perpetual activity to uphold the world, to sustain the world by the word of his power. Remember those infomercials for Ronco's rotisserie chicken thing? Never had one, but always loved the commercials. Made me hungry. You know, you just set it and forget it. That's not how the world works. Jesus didn't set it and forget it. He didn't institute Newton's laws. Thank you, Newton. No, he sustains continually, perpetually, all things. The whole of creation is sustained, preserved, and protected by the word of his power. Without the word of Christ's power, creation would crumble. Maybe you have kind of a practical deistic view of, of creation. 
where God created it, but he just kind of pulled away and just does what it's thing. No, God is engaged to the degree that if he removed his upholding activity, everything would collapse. Do you believe that? Without the sovereign work of God over all things, controlling all things, upholding all things, sustaining all things, we'd find ourselves wrapped in a chaos of destruction. Instead, God is in control. Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you you believe that to the degree that it says it? Do you believe that if Christ let go, destruction and chaos would reign? Don't we know the temptation to forget this, especially this upholding work of Christ when things are difficult? But nothing escapes his sustaining power and his perfect design. But when things go in a direction that we don't like, what do we suppose? Somehow God's not in control. Somehow things are flying off the handle. It's easy to look at Saturn in the night sky and say, wow, God is sustaining all things, upholding it by the word of his power. But what do you do when you hold a sick and dying child? It's easy to see the sunrise, brilliant with orange and red light and creeping over the horizon and say, God upholds the universe by the word of his power. But what when a trusted friend that you've co-labored with in the gospel walks away from the faith, then what? He upholds the universe by the word of his power. There's no caveats. You see, if Jesus is ontologically who the Hebrews preacher claims he is, that his very nature is divine, in his being he's the son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the imprint of his character, then he almost also must be functionally who God claims he is. The one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Christ is in control and everything is moving in the direction that he desires. Look how easy it is for him. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Anybody want to admit to yelling at their kids? (laughs) Don't raise your hand. But we have, like our words are so puny and weak and Christ upholds the world by the word of his power. Can there be a more immense superiority of Christ as creator than just I say it and it happens? We cannot create the tiniest speck of even the most insignificant piece of matter, much less a a shooting star or or an ocean or an infant. We can't create anything, and he can create everything, and he did create everything. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. All of it God created with his words, created, sustained by the word of Christ's power, But here's what's even more mind-boggling to me. He can do whatever he desires to do. He's demonstrated his power and ability. He uses his power and authority and identity and ability to do what? To care for us. Psalm 51.10, this is a plea from David, but points to the proof of what God can do. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. If God can create the worlds and the universe and everything that there is, can he not create in you a right heart? Then don't wander around without asking. God has the universe to be concerned with, but he's concerned with your heart before him. And his pleasure is to work on your behalf and to be spent for your good, for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a New creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That seems outlandish until you look around. And if God could do all that we see and sustain everything that there is, can't he help 
your heart? Can't he recreate your heart? You say, well, I've got mess in the past. I've got junk in my soul. Do you suppose the one who created the world and sustains the world by the word of his power can't solve your heart struggles? You're not an ex exception to the extent by which his power can reach. Why? Because Jesus is the son. Nothing is impossible for God. Can you live before the heir of all things in the same way as you would before a friend? Can you worship the creator with an indifference? Can you gaze on God, very God, with apathy? Can you know the son and worry about tomorrow? Or can you trust and worship and live for the one who has been promised all things, who is going to inherit all things and is working all things out for your good and for his glory now and for forever? When we ask what David, as Psalm 8, chapter 8, verse 4 says, what is man that you are mindful of him? God can do all these things and he cares about you? Absolutely. Who, who would do this? Only God, the Son. What a Savior. The Son whom God appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Look what comes next. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The final word from the Father is the only word that you need, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you show us in this passage. I pray that we'll find these truths captivating, that they'll shape our hearts shape our passions, that they'll cause us to want more of just Christ, to see that there's nothing better here than to know him in all of his glory as he sits there with you, the one who's made purification for our sins. Help us this week to long to love him, to long to know him, to long to be like him. Help us, we ask in his name. Amen.